May the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. As you know, today is Easter Sunday, and it is a day when Christians throughout the world commemorate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, many people only think of the resurrection of Jesus as one extraordinary event in space-time history. Jesus died, He was buried, He was raised to life on the third day, period. And that is all good and true. But today, I want us to see that the extraordinary resurrection of Jesus affects ordinary people, in the ordinary activities of their ordinary lives. In other words, I want you to know that the extraordinary life-giving power of the resurrection applies to ordinary folks like you in ordinary places like this. Now let me show you how. As you know, we're walking through the Gospel of John and focusing our attention on Jesus, the Word made flesh for the life of the world. Our sermon text for today is John 2, 1 through 11. If you are able, please stand and listen to God's holy Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. That is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word, and all the church says, you may be seated. Now, I admit that at first glance, this story seems like an unlikely Easter story. But my prayer is that by the end of the sermon, you will have seen that it is, in fact, perfect for the occasion. Why? Because this story shows us that the extraordinary life-giving power of the resurrection applies to ordinary folks in ordinary places in ordinary circumstances. 
It's very hard to come up with titles for sermons. You have to do it every seven days. And it's difficult because sometimes you want to be really creative and other times you just kind of throw in the towel. And this is one of those weeks where I'm not sure if it was creative or throwing in the towel or just tripping over the towel. But the title of the sermon was W's on the Third Day. Now the reason I said W's is because we were going to explore five words that all start with W that come out of this text. And on the third day, not only because it is Easter, but because you notice in the scripture reading that the first line of the story reads, on the third day. You might want to keep that phrase in mind. So let's look at these five words one at a time. And think of this sort of as uh, little sermons within a bigger sermon. Okay? So five little snapshots that we'll put together at the end for a composite picture of the story of Jesus' first sign that revealed His glory. The first word is wedding. Now I know at the sound of wedding all of you men get so excited. You just can't wait. I'm well aware that for some men, weddings are a beatdown. Some men hate weddings, and most women love them. And that's just to put it mildly. But I want to point out that Jesus went to a wedding. And while I'm tempted to say that only a man who is also God would enjoy a wedding. The story shows us that Jesus went along with his disciples, who seemed to be quite willing to be there. And guys, I want to point out that they were also men. Some were even rough and rowdy fishermen. And so I conclude two things about this story immediately. One is that real men enjoy going to weddings. And two is that if you want to be like Jesus, you will gladly attend the next wedding to which you are invited. I'm not sure that's the intent of the text, but work it out in your own marriage. Now most of that was tongue-in-cheek, but on a more serious note, I want you to note that it's worth pointing out that marriage is right and good. And by marriage, we mean real marriage. Real marriage between one man and one woman for one life. Not the fake marriage that's being sold to us these days or marketed around us between men and men or women and women, which in fact is no marriage at all. Echoing the Scriptures, we gladly proclaim that marriage was instituted by God Himself in the time of man's innocency and uprightness. And that the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And thereupon God created woman of man's own substance and brought her to the man. Our Lord Jesus Christ honored marriage by His presence at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And later in His ministry, He confirms it as a divine ordinance and union not to be severed when He declared, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus honors Marriage, and he honors the wedding ceremony by participating in this feast. He's a guest at the wedding in Cana, but at the end of all things, he himself will become the groom at his own wedding. 
So far in our journey through John's Gospel, we have seen and heard many times that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what you might not know about Him is that He came into the world to lay down His life to pay the bride, the bride price for the love of His life, which is the church. In other words, He came into the world to kill the dragon and get the girl. The book of Revelation shows us a vision of the future marriage of Jesus, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb of God. After He slays the dragon, He takes His bride. And in the vision, there was what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And in that vision, an angel says, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Now, on behalf of the Lamb of God and His Bride, we wish to extend an invitation to all of you. You're all invited to the wedding feast of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was present at your wedding. We must be present at His. So use whatever time you have left with the life that you have to get ready for His wedding in the next life. That goes for you children, you men, and you women. Now, speaking of women, that brings us to the next key word in our story. Woman. In the story, we see that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus says to Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, one of the things that's so easy to forget about each other, even about people in the story of the Bible, is that people have mothers. We look at Jesus and we forget sometimes that He had a mother. And I want you to see in this story that, as it was in your case perhaps, it was in my case, mother played a crucial role in shaping his life, his virtues, his image, his habits. Mothers do that for their children. Jesus had a mother who brought him up in the grace and truth of God's Word. I hope and pray that you have a mother like that. I thank God that I do. I thank God that my kids do. And just in case some of you didn't, let me assure you that there are some godly women here who would happily serve as a spiritual mother for you and show you that same grace and truth. But the thing I want you to see here is that Jesus has a mother. And why, why is that important? He has a mother who has encouraged him and shaped him and prepared him for this moment of his life. When Jesus was 30 years old, he and his mother still had a good relationship, a good healthy relationship. And in this story, we see mother and son kind of working out the kinks of their relationship. Okay? Mary sees that there's no more wine and she tells Jesus about it. Now, if you're a son who's ever dealt with a mother, then you know what she meant when she said they have no more wine. 
she didn't really mean they have no more wine. She meant, you need to do something about this. She might have even implied that they have no more wine because you brought all of these disciples with you and we didn't expect them to be here and they drink a lot. Okay? So we don't really know, but Jesus sort of pushes back. He takes it and then He kind of pushes back on her. Keep in mind, Jesus is no longer a boy. He is a man. And furthermore, He is the God-man who is on mission to save the world. He has bigger concerns on His mind than they have no more wine. And He lets her know in only a way that a son can. So all of you mothers who have a son, know what it feels like to have your son answer something like this. What in the world does that have to do with me? I've got my own time schedule. I mean, what are you trying to do here? Okay? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Mary sees this as a chance for him to show who he is and what he can do. But Jesus is pushing back and saying, hey, this isn't on my timetable. I'm just here for the wedding. I've got other things to do later on. And just like a good mother, she completely ignores him and responds, whatever. Actually, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. But it's just like saying, whatever, son. Now, mothers, this is for you. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. There is no better advice, counsel, or instruction under heaven that you can give your sons and daughters than this. Do whatever Jesus tells you. If you don't tell your kids anything else, tell them that. And you might say, well, the Mary told that to the servants in the story. Well, treat your kids like servants. That's what we do in my house. <laughs> and then tell them, do whatever Jesus tells you. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on why Jesus called His mother woman instead of mother. And most commentators agree that it sounds rude to our ears. Doesn't it? It sounds rude to our ears. But... Apparently, it did not sound rude to Mary's ear. She just took it all in stride. But why would he call her mother, uh, woman instead of mother? Why would he call her woman instead of mother? Now, here's where I want you to brace yourselves. Okay? Take a deep breath. Dial in. Are you ready for this? Dr. Michael Reeves, professor of theology at Union School of Theology points out that in John's Gospel when Jesus calls His mother woman this might be this might be His way of echoing God's promise from Genesis 3.15 in other words He might be hinting to her woman I'm the dragon slayer I'm the seed of woman I've come to crush the serpent. Now, if you're not convinced by that, hang with me a minute. Later on in John's Gospel, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, He looks out and He sees His mother. He sees the disciple whom He loves. And He says to His mother, Woman, look at your son. Now, why would He say that? Why would he say that? She knew what he had come into the world to do. She knew that someday his hour would come. 
She's been nudging him along. She's his number one fan. She's the best cheerleader. She's the one wanting him to accomplish all these things. And in the moment when it looks like he's not accomplished any of those things, in that moment, he says, Woman, look at your son. Look at your seed. The promise is fulfilled. Watch me crush the serpent. From the Garden of Eden to the Garden Tomb, every man and woman in God's community had watched and waited and wept for the seed of woman to come. They were seeking the Savior of the world even with tears. And so after His resurrection from the dead, Jesus encounters a friend named Mary. And He says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? From Jesus' point of view, the search is over. The seed of woman has come and slain the dragon. So there is no more need to watch or wait or weep. And Jesus obviously had a much clearer perspective on these things than we realize. At one point in His ministry, He explains, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a man has been born into the world. Now that is true in a general biological sense, but it is more true in a special theological sense. Now that the woman's hour has come, now that the God-man has been born into the world, now that the seed of woman is here, the woman may forget her anguish and her pain. Why? For she will be delivered by the dragon slayer whom she delivered. No woman in the history of the world understood this better than the woman who gave birth to the Word made flesh, the God-man whom she washed with water and nursed with milk when he was just a baby. Woman, what does this have to do with me? To which she might have said, Everything, son. Now speaking of water, this brings us to the next key word, water. There's six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. Now I know it's hard for us to imagine, but there were no utility companies treating and pumping fresh potable water into the houses in Cana. People in Jesus' day did not have running water at their homes, so they had to go out and draw water from wells or rivers or streams. My wife and I have lived in places in Mexico where water is scarce. We know what it's like to stand in line and wait to get a bucket of water to take back to the apartment so we could have a little bit of water to wash a dish or perhaps to cook with. We know what it's like to gather water and then ration it out. So we understand a little bit about this experience. Maybe some of you do as well. In this story, we have people who gather water and they keep it in large stone jars. And the reason they do that is because 
the law of God required them to keep plenty of water around so they could purify themselves. They had to wash their faces and their hands and their feet. They had to do all sorts of things with water to remain ceremonially clean. The clean water was carefully applied by sprinkling, pouring, or dipping their hands, feet, dishes, or whatever with this water. Now, it is likely that some of that water had actually been used for the bridal shower. You hear bridal shower, you think big party, exchange a bunch of gifts. In their day, bridal shower meant just that, a bridal shower. This woman is about to get married. We're going to bathe her. We're going to wash her. We're going to make her clean and prepare her for her marriage. It is likely that some of that water of purification was used for her. It is also likely that that water was used for the guests who came in. I mean, it's a dusty place out there. People are walking and traveling. They're sweating. They show up at the wedding. And the hospitable thing is to let everyone wash up. So the water of purification is getting lower and lower in those jars. We know there were enough people there at the wedding to drink a lot of wine. And they're using up the water, not for drinking, but for washing. So, that explains why Jesus says, fill them to the brim. You might be saying, why weren't they already full? That's probably why. Now, the point is this. The water was used not for drinking or cooking. It was used for special purposes. We might even say that it was, in a sense, now watch me now, scare quotes, holy water. Okay? Meaning that it was set apart for special purposes. Now, in this story, the stone water jars would hold between... 120 to 180 gallons of water combined. That's how much water would be there. To put that in perspective for you, let me talk about your water usage, the water you will use today. It is estimated that each one of us will use between 120 and 180 gallons of water today. Each one of us. And we will do that as we flush the toilet and take our showers and do our laundry and dishes and water plants and whatever else we do with it. That's not even counting washing our cars. We use a lot of water. Compare that with places in Africa where people on average use about five gallons of water each day. Now why am I telling you all this stuff about water? Because I want you to feel guilty, okay? No, because I want you to know just how good you have it. It's so easy to forget just how good we have it. We take so much for granted, but I want to encourage you to give thanks to God for every drop of clean water that you have. It is a priceless resource that we cannot afford to waste. Maybe knowing that other people do not have as much as you will make you more aware of how you might handle your water resources. I didn't even get on a very high soapbox. It's more like a soda box, so I'll get off of that for now. Water is a luxury to some. Throughout the world, water is a luxury to some. In our culture, water is not really a luxury. It's sort of a commodity. For us, a luxury would be like wine. Wine. And I don't mean cheap box wine, but I mean real wine that, that costs them. We say, oh, that's a luxury. I don't have much of that. And that brings us to the next key word. Moving right along, wine. Now, 
What's the big deal about wine? It's likely that some of you are reading this story, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, and maybe today you're going, man, why are they so worried about running out of wine? What's the big deal? If I have a party and I run out of food or drink, I just tell people, hey, we're out, it's done, it's over, and then you, you make a run to the store or you just do without. But that's not how it went down in their day. You see, in their day, when you hear there's no more wine, people who are close to the wedding party would go, oh no, this is terrible. That's why Jesus' mother is so worried about the wine. She's thinking, if you run out of wine, that signals the end of the party. Now you, again, you might be wondering, what's the big deal? In the Old Testament Scriptures, we learn that God's people used wine for at least three major reasons. I'll quickly mention them and then move on. The first one is for celebrations. Believe it or not, God called His people even to drink wine and strong, strong drink in His presence during worship. He gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. So it's a gift that is intended by God to be used in celebrations. It's also used for covenant making, including weddings and communion. Okay, you have this luxurious drink. It symbolizes all kinds of things, uh, mainly pointing to blood. My life for your, kind of, your life kind of thing. It's also used for comforting the sick and the poor. And so wine had a, a range of uses in that culture. Some of those uses are lost on our culture, but in the Christian circles we're regaining those, recapturing those things. Here's what I want you to know. N.T. Wright explains that the wedding probably involved the whole village and neighboring communities. So running out of wine was not just inconvenient, it was a social disaster and disgrace. The families would have to live with the shame of it for a long time to come, and the bride and groom might even regard it as a sign of bad luck, a curse on their marriage. Now, before you scoff and shake your head, roll your eyes and go, whatever... Keep in mind that in the Old Testament, running out of wine was tied to covenant curses. It was considered a sign of judgment that the prophets would preach. When people said, we're out of wine, we don't have as many grapes, we don't have as much uh, return for our labor, we're not harvesting as much as we used to, the prophets would say, you better check your obedience to the law of God, you better check your faith in God. God is bringing curses upon you to drive you back to Him. So the the absence of wine or the shortage of wine was considered a curse. But wine overflowing was considered a covenant blessing, a sign of God's pleasure and deliverance for His people. Now as I said, this water was not used for drinking, it's used for purification only. So when Jesus commands the servants to draw water out and take it to the master of the ceremony, He's asking them to do something risky, something culturally taboo. He's asking them, in fact, to trust Him and obey Him entirely, whatever He commanded. Now put yourselves in the shoes or the sandals of those servants and know that they had no idea what Jesus, why Jesus wanted them to take water to the Master of Ceremonies. They had no idea what He intended to do with the water. And they certainly did not imagine that he would ever turn water into wine. I mean, who would have guessed that? One thing they did know for sure is that when they take water to the master of ceremony, when the master of ceremony drinks the water, he will declare this celebration effectively over. 
So they are, in their, perhaps in their own minds, bringing bad news to the Master of Ceremony. But when this Master of Ceremony tastes the wine, what does he do? He pronounces the party just getting started. Why? Because the wine was better than all the wine that had already been served. So Jesus took these water jars filled to the brim and he turned water into wine. I have a friend, you, some of you have met him, he's from the Middle East, from Lebanon, and he tells me that in some places in the Middle East, when a host wants his guests to feel welcome in his home, he will pour wine into their cups. And he will pour the wine in their cup until it spills over the brim. He wants you there. If your host doesn't want you there, if he wants you to leave, the signal is he doesn't feel your cup overflowing. That's a sign that this is almost over. Okay. Now Jesus is not the host of this wedding feast, but he does something like the host to show us that He is, in fact, the Good Shepherd of His people. He makes their cups overflow. And He makes sure that goodness and mercy will follow them all the days of their life. Can you imagine what you could do with 180 gallons of fine wine? Now, before we move on to the very last key word, I want to point out that water and wine come together, not only in this story, but they will come together again later in the Gospel of John in two places. In John 13, Jesus will take a, a basin of water and wash His disciples' feet as purification. And then in John 19, He will taste the sour wine while hanging on the cross. And then finally, when he gives up his spirit and dies, a soldier will jab him with a spear and water and blood will flow from his side. While he was sleeping, his bride was taken and formed out of his side. And when he awoke on the third day, he said, Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, my rib. The Word made flesh laid down his life for his bride. And she was purchased by His precious blood and washed with His pure water of love. Now speaking of the Word, that brings us to the last one, the Word. The Word made flesh. It doesn't take much imagination to see that 120 to 180 gallons of fine wine was a lavish gift for the newlyweds. But I don't want you to get stuck on that. I want you to move beyond that and see that it was actually more than a wedding gift. Herman Ritterboss says that here in the story of the first sign, all the emphasis lies on the fact that in Jesus is given the fullness of God's gifts in their joyful, world-illuminating world and life-giving meaning. So turning water into wine is a sign a sign of something, a picture that Jesus used to reveal the grace and truth of His glory to His disciples. Remember from last week, Jesus said to His disciples, you're going to see greater things than these. You are going to see glory revealed in truer, better, and greater ways. And this sign is the first of many signs to come. But what does it all mean? I love what one pastor said. He put it like this. In this story, 
Jesus takes 180 gallons of law and he transforms it into 180 gallons of grace and truth. He takes 180 gallons of ritual, transforms it into 180 gallons of reality. He takes 180 gallons of law and he transforms it into 180 gallons of the gospel. As John said, from the fullness of His glory, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So by turning water into wine, Jesus did something that no one expected. He brought a wedding feast back to life from the dead. And if He can bring a wedding feast back to life with a little bit of wine, just imagine what He can do in your life with the Spirit and Word of the Gospel. Surely He can bring your heart back to life with His Spirit. Surely He can change your despair into hope. Surely He can transform your broken past into a healed future. Surely He can refill your empty soul. Surely He can flip the script on your story. Surely He can revive your marriage. Surely He can save you from disaster and disgrace. By doing this sign on the third day, Jesus shows us that the extraordinary life-giving power of the resurrection applies backwards and forwards to the ordinary folks like you in ordinary places like this in the ordinary circumstances of life. Now John tells us that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But this sign was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He came into the world so that you may have life and have it filled to the brim and overflowing. All you have to do is heed His mother's wise counsel. Do whatever He tells you. And do you know what He tells you to do? Let not your hearts be troubled. Do not doubt. Believe in Me. And if you do what He says, you will experience the life-giving power of His resurrection now and always. Let us pray together. Adorable Redeemer, You who was lifted up on a cross and ascended to highest heaven. You who as man of sorrows was crowned with thorns are now as Lord of life wreathed with glory. Once no shame more deep than Yours, no agony more bitter, nor death more cruel. But now no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. What more could be done than you have done? Your death is our life, your resurrection our peace, your ascension our hope, your prayers our comfort. For your glory and by your grace we pray. Amen.